Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 10, and starting in verse 34. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, something you can find underneath your chair or the chair in front of you, it's on page 919. We have reached this the moment in this chapter where Peter has been sought for and is now present at Cornelius' house and is ready to speak the word everyone is waiting for. So let's give our attention to God's word. But before we read, let us ask God's help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a needy people ready to receive from you and yet needing you to open our ears to hear the truth and make our hearts receptive to what you would teach us. Lord, we pray that your word, which is living and active, would pierce us, bringing us to greater understanding, bringing us to conviction of sin and causing us to rest in Christ, who is our only hope in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Again, Acts 10, starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. But then this is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, we come this morning to our now third glimpse of all that's going on in Acts chapter 10. The gospel is breaching the Gentile regions according to Christ's word at his ascension. And so far, we've seen the Lord showed Peter the end of the dietary laws and its implications. Namely, that the Gentiles are no longer to be regarded as unclean and thereby incapable of fellowship with the Jews. Indeed, the Lord's great plan is to take those of every nation, tongue, and tribe 
and make them one people together in Christ. All the ends of the earth are to turn to Jesus and be saved. Further, we've seen the patience of our God slowly teaching Peter amidst resistance and then kindly rebuking Cornelius when he bowed down to Peter, which he shouldn't have done. The Lord is showing us not only is he the Lord of all, both Jew and Gentile, but he's patient with all, ready to teach all. Additionally, we've begun to see something of the glorious significance of gospel preaching. While an angel could have told Cornelius the saving news of Jesus, that's not the plan of God. For God has chosen to use the foolishness of a mere frail man speaking about Jesus rather than a supernatural announcement from angels to be the vehicle to herald the gospel. And of course, the amazing thing is, as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, that gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation. Because the Spirit operates supernaturally in hearts as a mere man declares the message, the saving message of Jesus Christ. Well, we finally come to the moment of gospel proclamation in our text. Cornelius, his relatives, his friends, they're all assembled in God's presence. They want to hear what the Lord has commanded Peter. So Peter will now proclaim the gospel. There are three things we're going to see in our text. We'll spend most of our time in the first two. First, see with me. Pride put off. Pride put off in verses 34 and 35. There's a great anticipation hanging in the air as these Gentiles hunger to hear from Peter. But before Peter gets to the gospel facts, he first relates something about God Himself and His saving purposes. Look at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now, this is something of a confession for Peter. Peter, like his fellow Jews, had come to think that their favored status as Jews, as the people of God, who had alone received the Scriptures, who had been brought into the covenant, who were redeemed from Egypt and given special laws, the Jews believed themselves to be superior to all other peoples. They believed God was partial to them. Now, while it's true that God in His grace gave Israel special privileges, the thought that God is partial runs contrary to what God Himself had told Israel. Deuteronomy 10.17 Moses said, the great, the mighty, the awesome God Yahweh, ready for this, is not partial. Pretty clear, right? Plain as day, Deuteronomy 10, 17. God doesn't play favorites. God gives justice to the fatherless and the widow, those people disregarded. And this part is crucial. He, God, loves the sojourner, the alien the Gentile. And then Moses told Israel, Deuteronomy 10, 19, you therefore love the sojourner for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, do we recognize what's being said there in Deuteronomy 10? The Israelites were outcasts in Egypt, strangers in a foreign land, but God had mercy on them. 
And thus, when the Gentiles are now among the Jews, those Gentiles are to be loved, cared for, ministered to. Why? Because God wasn't partial and isn't partial. God doesn't look at the Gentile and say, that's a grubby outcast, a waste of resources like some street dog. No, the Lord values all the sons of Adam, all human beings, and He doesn't discard some as worthless. And yet, that's exactly the way that the Jews were treating Gentiles. The Jews actually were trying to find theological justification for their, frankly, racist and bigoted views. Jews came to believe, and Peter, with the cultural blindness of his own day, was sucked into this. Jews believed God chose us because of something in us. We're morally superior. We're a special people to God. He made us His own because we stand out. We're strong, we're smart, we're sophisticated. That's exactly the opposite of what the Lord had said. Why did God choose them? Deuteronomy 9. It's not because you were righteous. One quick read of the Old Testament won't be a quick read, but one move through the Old Testament will quickly show you the Jews were no better than the Gentiles. Further, Deuteronomy 7. The Lord says, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous, like you were a stronger people. I loved you because I loved you. Because I decided to. His choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not because of anything in those men. Go back and read about these men. Grace snatched them from ruin. Each of those men, they're clearly sinners, and yet the Lord showered His grace upon them. God's grace, brethren, is free, unmerited, and totally unconditional. And that hasn't changed this morning as we sit here in our chairs. We are rescued by grace only because of grace. We sang a hymn this morning by Isaac Watts. He's asking a question in that hymn. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands made a wretched choice and rather starved than come? Or he puts it this way, as he describes the Lord Jesus drawing us to a great feast, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? When you get to glory, you won't be saying, oh yeah, I know why Jesus caused me to be here. No, why am I here? Because you are struck with your own sin, your depravity, and how you don't belong there. Grace is only grace, dear friends, if it's free. God is not partial as He saves people. No pride here. Nothing constrained the Lord to act for us. God did it, Ephesians 1, for His own good pleasure. That's breathtaking. But these Jews had corrupted this grace by giving themselves credit. And then they claimed, even worse, to have an exclusive hold on God's grace. This is one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders so despise Jesus. How in the world can you tell a story where a Samaritan is the hero? They have a problem with that. How can Jesus offer mercy to freely, freely to people when we are the sons of Abraham? Don't you know our special status? 
And yet we remember when God's covenant promise came to Abram to call him to life. He told him, Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Or further along, Genesis 22, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Likewise, in the Psalms and the prophets, they would speak of Israel as a light to the nations. Psalm 67 prayed that as God made His face to shine upon Israel, that God's saving power would then be known among the nations. Listen to these declarations from the Psalms. This is Psalm 22. All the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Psalm 45. Nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Almost all of you could have said that verse, but do you know that the next part? I will be exalted among the nations. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. Psalm 96, declare His glory among the nations. Psalm 117, praise the Lord all nations. You should be impressed because we are the nations. And brethren, God has been faithful to His Word. That's amazing. We don't deserve the Lord to have a people among the nations, but He's drawn us to Himself. There's no pride here. There's simply an acknowledgement of great is Your grace, Almighty God. It's so plain in the Old Testament, isn't it? And yet the Jews in their pride, they, they missed it. They ignored it. And what Peter is saying now is, I get it. I lay my pride now in the dust. And furthermore, I am seeing that the Lord accepts people in every nation. Verse 35, look at that verse. He accepts anyone who fears Him and does what is right. What is the beginning of wisdom? It's not becoming a Jew. It's the fear of the Lord. And all who fear the Lord, regardless of ethnicity, background, or class, all who fear the Lord will be blessed by Him. Now, a clarification here. Peter is not saying, as he speaks to Gentiles, that Gentiles are saved on the basis of their, of their good deeds. Pagans out there can get saved without Christ just as long as they do what is right. That is not what he is saying. For what do we know about the nature of man? We know among the sons of Adam, Psalm 14, 53, Romans 3, that there is none who is righteous. Not even one. There's no one who does good. All are corrupt. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So how does a person move from no fear of God to being in a state of the fear of God? One word. Grace. Do you remember Noah? We've been reading about Noah in the morning readings. He lived among the wicked people. The whole earth is corrupt. But Genesis 6-8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then because of grace, Noah walked with God. Hebrews 11 will tell us when Noah built the ark, he built it in reverent fear. His fear was driving him to obedience. God says build a boat is a weird thing to do, but I trust you, I fear you, I'm going to do it. His fear of God wasn't hypothetical. It led to the doing of what was right. Well, that's what the fear of the Lord does, as is said here. The Lord accepts those who fear Him. They fear because of His grace. And then those people do what is right. Do you, do you understand the connection? If you don't do what is right, what's that tell you? What's that tell us about you? You, you don't fear the Lord. 
Brethren, do we understand this principle? The fear of the Lord, the reverential awe of God, His greatness, His power, His amazing grace, it produces obedience. So if we don't care about obedience, we don't fear the Lord. Or I'll put it the way Jesus says it in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Fear of the Lord is an attitude of heart that is expressed in our actions. We're known by our fruits. But the crucial point being communicated here is God will accept anyone of any nation who fears Him. Indeed, we've repeatedly seen in the Gospels how the Jews think they're favored because they have a certain bloodline. And yet Jesus says, no, you must be born again. Because without faith, and God gives the gift of faith at the new birth, and faith always yields works, but without faith producing works, then you don't have salvation. The Lord Jesus had saved people like the Gerizim demoniac and the Syrophoenician woman. They were Gentiles who had a real faith, real fear of God, and God accepts them. Here's the larger issue. The world may regard you as worthless, as the lowest of low, as unworthy of any thought or any care, but the Lord God Almighty isn't partial. He accepts anyone who fears Him. And should this not give us a desire and a compassion for the lost? To preach the gospel to all the nations. Because there are no people excluded from the saving mercy of our God. Peruvian street children, you've seen them and how they're neglected, some of you. And yet the Lord can rescue them. Albanian Muhammadists, the Lord can save them. British secularists, college student hedonists, or even fellow Douglasvillian heathens. The Lord can save them. Low class, high class, culturally acceptable, cultural outcast. God is no respecter of person. Anyone, anywhere can be taught the gospel and can have grace teach their hearts to fear. So are we willing to give them the saving message that can alone bring them to life? Well, what means does God ordinarily use to communicate His saving grace. Ordinarily, it's preaching. So secondly now, we get to the preaching, the good news of peace. Peter, starting in verse 36, moves in on some crucial gospel facts. He says, As for the word that He, God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Peter saying at the outset, the message that I convey is a message of peace from God. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ because God is reconciling sinners in Christ. And that reconciling work, resting on what Jesus did, isn't different for a Jew than it is for a Gentile. There aren't two paths of peace. If you're a Jew, you're already good. If you're a Gentile, you got some stuff to do. No. There's one message of peace. There's one proclamation of the good news, which, by the way, is language of the announcement of a victory. 2 Samuel 18 is the background of that word. But when a war was won, the herald, the messenger of the king, was sent to announce the good news of triumph. That's what's taking place in the gospel preaching. We announce 
not what we have done to get peace. Do this, do that, and you can get yourself peace with God. You can earn His favor. Not at all. We announce what the King, Jesus Christ, has done. We publish news of His tidings, news of His triumph, His death for sinners, His reconciling work when He declared from the cross. It is finished. He paid our debt. And therefore, you need to repent and believe. And we call men, women, boys and girls of all nations to look to Christ and live. Hear what Christ accomplished and cling to Jesus by faith. And then this peace, this good news, it rests on a collection of facts. Now this is a crucial point that we've been making in the Machin Sunday School class if you've been with us. The good news, which begins with a triumphal indicative, not do this, do this, do this, that's an imperative. A triumphal indicative, an announcement of facts. Here's what Jesus has done. The good news begins with this triumphal indicative and it is necessarily historical. We're talking here about real facts, real stuff that was accomplished in history, in space and time. We're not talking about mere abstract ideas. Jesus did something to bring peace to those who trust Him. And the things that Jesus alone did are the only path to have peace with God. Peter is about to convey the gospel message. And we should note, we've already read it, it's the same message that he preached at Pentecost. The Lord has one message for all people. And it doesn't matter who you are. Jew, Gentile. doesn't matter at all. It's an unchanging message. And brethren, that's really striking as we keep reading the book of Acts. It's a challenge for the preacher because you want to hear something different every time as we move through the book of Acts. And Acts is just giving us repetition after repetition after repetition. We're going to hear preaching from Peter, Stephen, Philip, Paul. They preach to kings and commoners, Jerusalem Jews, Hellenist Jews, Samaritans and Gentiles. We get all this record of their preaching and they all communicate the same stuff. What does it mean? The gospel does not change on the basis of culture. The gospel does not change with the march of time. The gospel never changes in view of the audience. We don't recast or reconstruct the gospel. The good news of peace is an explanation of the historical work of Jesus and it is unalterable. It will not accommodate to modern ideas. The gospel is intolerant. It will not tolerate some other idea invading it. There's only one message about Jesus Christ. And without the facts of what Jesus did proclaimed, you are not sharing the gospel. This puts to bed the famous yet utterly foolish saying of Francis Assisi. I'm sure you've heard it at some point in your life. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That is total hogwash. Wipe it from your brain unless you're going to mock it because it's stupid. That is impossible. Implicit in that statement is suggesting that preaching the gospel doesn't require any words. And the best sermon you've ever heard is just watching someone else live and never telling you the truth. It is true biblically, of course, brethren, that we are to live a certain way because of what the gospel has done and our lives should garner attention because we are light in the Lord. 
But you can't really distinguish between a morally upright secularist and a Christian without the words communicating what the differences are. Jesus didn't come as a mere example. He came preaching a message. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then Jesus sealed the message with his blood. There is content that must be proclaimed. And without that gospel content, there is no gospel. So what are the gospel facts? Well, Peter conveys at least ten of them here. And you'll be happy I'm not going to enumerate them. This is not a word-for-word account of everything Peter said. Luke is giving us a summary, as he does with all of these sermons. And in fact, scholars have noted that Peter's preaching here is actually a summary of the whole gospel of Luke. Peter starts with a preparatory ministry of John the Baptist, verse 37. And note the public nature of everything he says. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. The ministry of John, followed by the ministry of Jesus, wasn't hidden in a corner. Droves of people from all the Judean countryside and various other places were coming to John. By the way, Caesarea, where Peter is here in a house preaching to Cornelius, is part of the Roman province of Judea. They would have heard about John the baptizer several years back and what he was doing, saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, calling for people to repent, telling people to look for the Messiah. And then Jesus' ministry began in Galilee, according to Isaiah chapter 9, as Luke has taught us. And as Jesus began preaching and healing, the word about Him went everywhere. Cornelius, as he sits in Caesarea, is about five miles from the border of the region of Galilee. And Luke already told us that as Jesus started preaching, a multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, and Caesarea is also on the seacoast, they have heard of what Jesus is doing and they go to Him. They go that Jesus would heal them. Cornelius and the others would have heard stuff about Jesus' works. Now, they didn't hear Jesus directly and they haven't heard of all Jesus did and what it means. That's why Peter is here. But news had reached them. Yet one could easily think, particularly in the ancient world, as news comes to you, "Ah, I don't know about that. That's That's a bit exaggerated. Surely this is overblown. Peter says, no, it wasn't. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The miracles that Jesus performed after his anointing with the Spirit demonstrated that He is the shoot from Jesse's stump. He is the Spirit-filled King of Isaiah 11 and 61. And His kingly power is evidenced as He overthrows the curse. Satan's kingdom is crumbling before Jesus Christ. The devil can't resist Him. Sickness and death get out of Jesus' way. Jesus is clearly empowered by God. And these stories of healing, of demonic exorcisms, they're not fairy tales. They aren't exaggerated reports. Because note, Peter adds, this is crucial, verse 39. We, meaning me and my fellow apostles, we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Do you see, friends, how Jesus, sorry, how Peter is pointing to historical credibility? We are witnesses. 
We saw all these things. We put our eyes on it. We saw everything. All that was being communicated about Jesus' power is clearly seen by us and God is saying He has empowered the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is broken in, Isaiah 35. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the devil's tyranny is being overthrown. There is hope in what Jesus really did. But then here's the shocking fact. Though Jesus was clearly filled with the power of God, for God was with Him and doing good, what did the Jews do to Jesus? 39, they put Him to death. And not just any death, they committed Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. Cornelius is a God-fearer. He's familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures and he would know that death by hanging according to God's law means you're cursed. The Jews regarded Christ as being accursed of God, but Jesus really died. And it begs an immediate question, how could the God-man die? How could the one anointed by the Spirit, clothed in the Spirit's power, go to His death? Luke doesn't give us more here, but we remember some of the other sermons we've heard in the past that Jesus' death was in view of our sins. This was God's plan to save His people. Isaiah 53, God took our iniquities and He laid them on Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, the one bearing our crimes. And yet, while these wicked men killed Jesus, what did God do? God raised Him from the dead on the third day. This was God's plan. He confirmed a delight in Christ's work by raising Him up, verse 40. So Jesus died under the judgment of God, and yet God Himself vindicated Jesus. What does it mean? It means the sacrifice that Christ offered as the Lamb of God was accepted. And to make it clear, that the resurrection isn't just an idea, some mystical, spiritual notion of this ongoing consciousness of God, this vague declaration that Jesus is somehow still with us. No, Peter adds that Jesus appeared and we saw Him. He didn't appear to all people, verse 41, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And then note this in verse 41 who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Do you see how Peter is stressing eyewitness testimony and historical credibility? We saw these things. We didn't just see them. I had breakfast with Jesus. He had a real body that consumed real fish. We didn't dream this stuff up. We're not hallucinating. This is not a myth. Jesus was really alive from the dead, and he has a real body raised from the dead. This is triumph over the grave, don't you see? Jesus' body is no longer in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem. Do you know the quickest way to crush Christianity would just be, go get the bones out of the tomb. Hey guys, Jesus is right here. He's dead. They couldn't do that because the tomb is empty. The body of Jesus is full of life because He's the Lord of life. He didn't appear to die. He really died. He really rose. His resurrection is physical. And the day Isaiah proclaimed has come when death is swallowed up in victory. Doesn't this already tell us that everything that God has promised that would come to pass in the Old Testament is coming to pass? That an age of hope and life is here. And then Peter adds another crucial fact, verse 42, 
And he, the risen Christ, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus Christ, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We're closing this point, but two things I want you to see here. First, Cornelius told Peter, we want to hear everything the Lord has commanded you. And Peter now explains what that command was. The command was to preach and testify of what we have seen and heard. It was to declare the gospel. Peter will say later, that, or sorry, Paul will say later, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. These men were under compulsion to preach the gospel. God had given them facts, things that they had witnessed, and they have to declare them. And that means, dear friends, because the message rests on facts, that the message doesn't die when these apostles die. By the Spirit, we have a record, a historical record, eyewitness testimony of everything that the apostles saw that we need to know. Where is that testimony found? It's found in your Bible. We've been given the gospel of Christ resting on the foundation of apostolic, historical, eyewitness testimony. So we haven't seen what they saw, and we haven't seen the risen Christ calling us to preach, but we have the record of it that we can now declare. And men are called to preach that word and to keep on preaching. We keep on conveying the facts. And then a second vital thing to close, second point, Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. We confess that in the Apostles' Creed. We already did. In other words, Jesus is the Lord of all. All people living, all people who are dead, Jesus will judge them all. He is the judge of Jew and Gentile. The facts of what Jesus did, His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, they matter for all people because you have to reckon with a resurrected King. If you're going to be saved from coming judgment, there's only one way of salvation. And it's found in this judge of the living and the dead. Brethren, here's the crucial thing that Peter's trying to apply to his audience, a bunch of Gentiles. You guys are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He is the one to whom all the prophets bear witness. And I tell you, everyone, verse 43, who believes in Him, this judge, receives forgiveness of sins through His name. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. You need to turn to Jesus because you're going to die and you're going to stand before the judge and there's only one way out. It's in Christ. And if you trust Christ, there's forgiveness in His name for everyone who believes. Not just a certain group of people. For everyone. Because He is the hope of the entire Scripture. And if we simply believe that He is Lord and Savior, our sins can be washed away. Oh, as we've come to church this morning, are we banking our souls on that fact? That we are all going to die. And we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's bad news for us if we don't have one to cover our sin. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And everyone who sins is a slave of sin and there's no one among us who hasn't sinned. There's only one way to rescue. And it's by trusting Jesus. And everyone who believes in His name will be forgiven. My friend, are you found this morning believing in Jesus' name? 
Are you resting your whole soul on Jesus Christ as the only way to escape judgment? You need to put off your pride too. You have no ground to stand on as though you could have good deeds that measure up to earn God's favor. If that could be true, Jesus wouldn't need to come. But Jesus came because we're a rotten bunch who were ruined and we need one to rescue us. And that one is Christ. Are you trusting in Him? And if you are trusting in Him, do you delight in the fact that you trust in Him and God has given you this glorious Savior and you want to tell everybody about how great He is? There's a way to escape condemnation. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Well, finally, and this is very brief, we see the Spirit poured out. Peter is still preaching his sermon and the Holy Spirit interrupts him. While Peter was still speaking these, these things, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. What does that tell us? Maybe it tells you, I wish the Holy Spirit would come and stop this long sermon. Sometimes the Holy Spirit intervenes and it's time to be done. Here, the Holy Spirit comes on all of them, which would have to mean that all of them believe. They all turned to Christ. They all repented and rested in Jesus. And now we're seeing the Pentecostal effect coming to pass. These, this amazes the six Jewish guys who came with Peter. Look, we think we're special. We, we've been prejudiced in our view of God, but now the Gentiles, who we regarded as less than, they've been gripped by the power of the Holy Spirit. They've been received as those who know God. They're fellow heirs with us. We're part of the same household of God. Because what the sinner needs is not a different diet, ceremonially clean food, and a handful of feasts, and a little mark in the flesh, circumcision. What they need is faith alone in Christ alone. The content of the gospel is not eat this, dress like that, go to this event, don't do this, get this mark. The content of the gospel is look at what Christ has done and trust Him. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross. I claim. It's been a problem for the church for the past 2,000 years to try to start adding stuff to the work of Christ. Peter's saying that's totally unacceptable. And Peter himself is going to get in trouble with Paul for trying to mess this up later. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. You simply trust Him. And as the Holy Spirit falls, we're seeing the same language used back in Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost. And it makes you wonder, as these Gentiles speak in tongues, does this mean that everybody converted speaks in tongues? Well, no, we've only heard of speaking in tongues in Acts 2 where the apostles and the company did it. And now these Gentiles are doing it. And there have been lots of people converted in between Acts 2 and where we are now. What does it all mean? It means just as we saw back then. The curse is being reversed. The Tower of Babel, what did God do because of the sin of Babel? He confused their language. Now Jesus has come in saving power and as the Spirit is poured out, the effect of sin is being overcome. Why are we hearing about a new phase of tongues coming? Because the Gospel is spreading, just as Jesus said it would, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So here are these Gentiles evidencing 
that the gospel is reverberating out. It's showing us this in closing. The word that Peter preached about real stuff that really happened, eyewitness testimony about true historical events, it was true because the Spirit owned the truth and awakened these people to life. We don't have a theoretical gospel. We don't have vain ideas that are just as good as anybody else's vain ideas. Brethren, we have something real, a gift freely given to everyone who believes. But if you trust in the name of Jesus, you have real forgiveness. Praise God that we can really be cleansed of sin and really have peace with God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. But Lord our God, we come marveling at how great and amazing You are and the gift of grace You've given to us in the Gospel of Your Son. Lord, we don't deserve the least of Your blessings, but You've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Help us to revel in these blessings and to walk in the joy that they produce. Lord, make us to live as a people who are loyal to You because of what You have done for us in Your love in giving Your Son to save our guilty souls. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Brethren,